0: Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning. Hokuto Sensei will present a talk this morning and lead the discussion afterwards. Modi Dharma's outline of practice. The noble enter the way by many paths, but essentially there are but two of which I speak. One is by principle and one is by practice. Those who enter by principle avail themselves of the teaching of the enlightened doctrine that all beings possess the same true nature, though it is obscured and not apparent due to worldly attachments and delusion. If one forsakes delusion and returns to the true, fixing one's gaze on a wall and forsaking thoughts of self and other, sacred and profane and so on, then by not moving and not chasing after scriptures or teachings, one is in accord with principle. When one undertakes silent, non-discriminating, non-action, it is called entering the way through principle. Entering by practice entails four essential practices that encompass all others. The first is enduring the results of past actions. The second is the practice of acting according to conditions. The third practice is seeking nothing And the fourth is known as practicing the Dharma. You may ask, how does one endure the results of past actions? Those who may be said to practice the way upon encountering difficult times, think to themselves for endless Kalpas Without beginning, I forsaken what is essential and pursued the frivolous, tossed by currents and waves, committing sins and transgressions without end. Now, although I commit no transgressions, it is my accumulated misdeeds, my store of harmful karma, which continues to bear fruit none among the heavens or humankind can see from where it arises. Without rancor or recriminating thoughts, I accept this. In the Sutra, it says, upon meeting hardships, don't grieve, but just recognize from whence it comes. When one's mind manifests in this manner, it is in accord with principle. And even by means of the body suffering, one enters the way. Second is the practice of just acting according to the conditions one encounters. All beings, not having independent existence, transmigrate through time according to conditions. No matter whether a person experiences bitterness or happiness, both arise from conditions. If we attain great achievements and acclaim, then it is due to our past karma. And though we may have it now, if the conditions that brought it to us are exhausted, then it will be gone. Why should take one take joy in it? Gain and loss arise due to conditions. Those who remain unmoved by the winds of pleasure are steadfastly in accord with the way Therefore this practice is called to accord with conditions. Third is the practice of non-seeking. People in the world are always deluded and everywhere covetous. This is known as seeking. The wise awaken to the truth and go against this trend pacifying their minds, they do nothing. The myriad forms of the world stir and swirl, all of them empty. But without any desires or joys, the virtuous remain where forms arise, abiding within the three worlds, though they are like a burning house. To have a body is to suffer. Who can arrive at such a state as to bear this with tranquility? They are the ones who have forsaken all things, stopped discursive thinking, and stopped seeking. The Sutra says to seek is but bitterness. Non seeking is joy. To know this and to end seeking is truly practicing the way. Therefore, it is called the practice of non-seeking. Fourth is called practicing the Dharma. Practicing the Dharma is to perceive the truth of pure nature, the truth that the myriad forms are empty. There is neither defilement nor attachment, neither this nor other. The sutra says the dharma does not have the myriad beings and thus remains untainted by the myriad beings. The dharma has no self and thus remains untainted by self. The wise, if they grasp this truth, should be in accord with the dharma and live by this understanding. The dharma body lacks nothing, so the wise forsake and renounce their bodies lives and wealth without regret. They abandon the empty world and relying on nothing. Without attachment, they give up all impurities. They are in accord with evolving life without grasping form. This is their personal practice, which also benefits others. It is, moreover, the majestic way of the bodhisattva, compassionate work. They also practice the other five perfections for the elimination of delusion. Practicing these six perfections in this way is practicing nothing and is thus practicing the dharma. So that's a rather long text and I don't intend to go into it in very much detail. Um, I would recommend to everyone who's listening that they read the text on their own. It's available in a number of books. The translation that I was reading from is from a book called Zen's Chinese Heritage, The Masters and Their Teachings by Andy Ferguson. But it's also available in a very nice, Um, translation by Red Pine called The Zen Teachings of Bodhidharma, which also includes the other three texts which are relatively reliably attributed to Bodhidharma. I'd like to spend the rest of the talk just talking about Bodhidharma and what we know about Bodhidharma and who he was and what his importance was in the history of Zen. So Bodhidharma lived at least 1600 years ago, at a time when history taking was not at its finest. So, most of what we know about Bodhidharma falls into the category of legend. And I suppose there are a lot of good reasons for that. One being that Bodhidharma himself was not a chatterbox, he was probably not one given to talking much about himself. And so, coming to a foreign country and practicing Zen practice in the manner in which he did, repeatedly facing a wall for nine years, doing solitary practice for nine years. Before ever attempting to teach in China. And then, when he did teach, he attracted relatively few followers. You know, we often hear in the histories of the ancestors that this ancestor had 1,500 monks and that ancestor had 800 monks. Bodhidharma did his best to push people away rather than trying to attract followers. One of the famous stories about Bodhidharma deals with how he came to teach his successor Wiko in Chinese or Eka in Japanese. And Eka, who had studied Buddhism for a long time on his own, still couldn't find peace of mind and came to Bodhidharma desperate for instruction, recognizing in Bodhidharma a karmic connection that had to be fulfilled, recognizing in Bodhidharma the teacher that he needed to fully attain the way. And so he sat outside the gate of Bodhidharma's temple. And Bodhidharma refused him admittance. And one night it snowed and he stood in the snow as it piled up around him, pleading for Bodhidharma to give him admission and to teach him. And Bodhidharma finally came to the gate and scolded The way is difficult. It requires sacrifice. And here you are, a person of such little merit, a person with so little dedication. How could I give you admission? And the story goes that Eka, in his desperation, took a knife or a sword and cut off his left arm and presented it to Bodhidharma as a sign of his dedication and his willingness to sacrifice everything, simply to hear and to practice the Dharma. And at that, Bodhidharma gave him admission to the monastery and agreed to teach him. Eka was Bodhidharma's second dharma heir. His first was a man named Tao Yu. But Tao Yu was not interested in teaching. And so Eka, who became Bodhidharma's heir, was the founder of the Chinese Zen lineage through the compassionate teaching of Bodhidharma all Zen sects and all Zen lineages run through these two figures. So what do we know about Bodhidharma? Honestly, very little. There are, of course, texts which mention Bodhidharma and describe his origins and how he came to China and what he did there. But the earliest texts don't agree with one another. One of the earliest texts says that he came from Central Asia and was probably Persian. Another very early text says that he came from southern India by the coast. And that text gives many details. It says that he was the third son of a king in this southern state of India. And it details how he was taught by Hanyatara, the last of the Indian ancestors in our lineage. How he met Hanyatara while he was still very young and Hanyatara asked the three sons of this king, to comment on a wonderful pearl that the king had given to Hanyatara as a symbol of his esteem for the teaching and for Hanyatara's presence. And when Bodhidharma saw the pearl He spoke with such eloquence and such understanding of the dharma that Tara immediately recognized him as his dharma heir. Although he told Bodhidharma that he would have to stay with him until his death, that is, Tara's death. and that then he should go to China. The story is recounted in a book called the Denko Roku or the transmission of the lamp, which if you're interested in the many legends of Bodhidharma as well as the many legends of others in our lineage going back all the way to the Buddha and ending um, a few generations after Bodhidharma. That book is certainly worth looking at and reading. So his dates are really unknown for sure. It's thought that he probably died sometime around 528 of the Common Era, perhaps a few years later. It's thought that he probably arrived in China towards the end of the fifth century of the Common Era perhaps as early as 470. And so he probably was in China for perhaps as much as 50 or 60 years. But all those dates are very much up in the air. It's thought that he lived to a very old age, which if it's true that he stayed with Hanyatara for 40 years after meeting him before journeying to China would mean that he may have lived as much as 100 years. But again, all of these dates are very much in question. Some of the texts say that he lived to be 150 years old. Again, open to question. It's known that when he arrived, China was divided into two kingdoms, the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom. He arrived in the southern kingdom after a journey of perhaps three years by sea, and he had a meeting with the emperor, Liang, which convinced Bodhidharma that the setting was not propitious for his dharma. And so he went across the Yangtze River to the Northern Kingdom where he practiced alone for some time before beginning to teach. It's thought that he didn't have very many followers, which if he was actively pushing people away, makes a good deal of sense. And yet after his arrival in the next 50 years following his arrival, the number of temples in Northern China increased by more than threefold from about 2,000 temples to about 6,500 temples. And the number of ordained in China increased from approximately 80,000 to approximately 2 million, or an increase of about 25 fold. And so it seems that he arrived in China at a very favorable moment in time. And perhaps his presence, the strength of his practice, the strength of his dharma, the power, of his wisdom and understanding pervaded far beyond the people that he came into direct contact with, far beyond the number of dharma heirs that he produced and acted as yeast in a mass of dough, causing it to rise and swell and grow into something truly magnificent. He left very little concrete in the way of teaching. There are only four short texts attributed to him, delivered presumably in the form of taishos or sermons and recorded by his followers. Of these four, only one is more or less universally acknowledged as being his own work. The other three, which are all wonderful works in themselves, are thought perhaps to be mostly his, but perhaps embellished and Filled out by his followers. And so the outline of practice, which is the text that I just read, which is so very rich and so wonderful, and will form the text for some future Dharma talks is the one that comes down to us as really the essence of Bodhidharma's teaching. I encourage you, if you are inclined to read more about Bodhidharma, and particularly to find the outline of practice, which can easily be found online, through the wonders of Google, you can simply type in outline of practice Bodhidharma and find the complete text, probably in several different translations. It's worth reading and pondering and letting it sink in. So many wonderful sentences, so many wonderful insights in this short text. And now, because time is short, I'll stop speaking and we can open to discussion. And please, before the discussion, if you need to adjust your posture to make yourself more comfortable, please do so. This has been a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org. Thank you for listening.